the Europe in the World podcast. Today we'll be covering part two of our defense and security series in the European Union. Let us reintroduce ourselves. I'm Lucia. I'm Konstantinos. I'm Kiani. And today we are honored to be joined by Dr. Julian Howarth, an esteemed Jean Monnet professor at Personem and professor emeritus of European politics at University of Bath, as well as a fellow at the Project on Europe and the Transatlantic Relationship at Harvard Kennedy School. He has published many works in the realm of EU security with regard to ending the division of responsibilities between the EU and NATO due to NATO having significant influence over EU collective security. analyzing EU security and defense policy in order to ascertain the flaws and strengths of the policy initiatives employed by the EU. We believe this holds major significance within today's European political landscape, considering the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the implications of which raise important questions about what the future of security and defense looks like. We are aware of your position advocating for a centralized European Union military force. As such, we are incredibly interested in hearing more about this perspective, as well as your thoughts on the current EU defense policy. So to start off, let's begin with the effectiveness of the common security and defense policy. Well, as you know, the uh, project for a common security and defense policy for the European Union has been around now since the mid-90s. Uh, and was really sort of launched in 1998 at this summit meeting between France and Britain at Saint Malo, where we get the concept of a European security capacity, which from the outset was aiming to become relatively autonomous from the United States. Why was that? For several reasons. First of all, because the United States, ever since the end of the Cold War, has Um, progressively pushed Europe off the radar screen. I mean, the US radar screen is <laughs> focused on China, uh, the Asia Pacific more generally, the Middle East possibly, but certainly not on Europe. So Europe was getting the message that it had to sort of pay more attention to its own neighborhood. Secondly, because the European Union was emerging as a major power, or at least it saw itself as a major international actor, and it seemed logical that it should have a defense component which had been missing up until that point, absolutely, totally. The EU member states did not allow any discussion of defense up until, really, until the 2000s, on the grounds that this was NATO, 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 and, you know, you don't touch, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, sort of thing. Uh, and the third reason, really, was that war had become a reality in Europe with the Balkan Wars, the breakup of Yugoslavia, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the thing was launched and it went through um, several processes of giving itself the institutional political capacity, a whole range of new institutions in Brussels. It set up a number of so-called headline goals or schemes for the implementation of capacity building, defense industrial base, all of these things. And all of that ran and ran and ran. Uh, and from 2003 onwards, the EU got involved in all sorts of overseas missions, mainly crisis management missions. There was a feeling that it was emerging as a military actor because the early missions had a military component, mission in Africa, in um, uh, in the Congo, missions in the Balkans, in um, Bosnia-Herzegovina, et cetera, which were military missions, but they were limited in scope 
even so. And of the 40 missions that the EU has carried out since 2003, when it first embarked on this, uh, the overwhelming majority, apart from five or six or seven, if you you know count military training missions, the vast majority of these have been civilian in nature, border management missions, rule of law missions, security sector reform missions, that sort of thing. So um, from about, I would say, 2010, 12, uh, the early 2010s, teens, uh, people began to ask pretty searching questions about where this was going. What actually was it achieving? How useful were these missions? There was a lot of criticism of the missions from analysts, mainly in the think tank sector. Academics tended to be more like myself, tended to be more sort of um, favorably disposed to it. But nevertheless, by the mid 2010s, a lot of people were asking a lot of questions about precisely where this was going. Um, and, and, and it really wasn't clear. The EU had given itself a number of strategic um, programs in 2003, um, the, 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 global, um, the global strategy in 2016. Um, all of these were designed to present the project to the world in the most favorable light possible. Since 2016, what changes have there been, if any? Now, with the coming of Donald Trump to the presidency, uh, people really began to sit up and, and, and wake up in Europe. There was here a real possibility that the United States was going to pull out, pull back, uh, and that what had been called strategic autonomy in the 2016 global strategy as the objective without any definition. Nevertheless, everybody was agreed that the EU must try to achieve greater strategic autonomy from the United States and, and, and from NATO. That became the big debate, really. So I would say that the three uh, major weaknesses of this from the outset, number one, which I haven't mentioned yet, is that the EU as an institution, as a body, and as a group of institutions, found itself increasingly at odds with its own member states, particularly the big ones, France, Germany, uh, UK, of course, UK is always a problem, even Italy, um, that what the EU wanted those member states to do collectively, the member states were reluctant to do because most of them see defense as a national issue and uh, particularly defense procurement as a national issue. Um, so I, I, I suppose um, yeah, that, so that was the first one, the, 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 the problems between the EU as an institution and its member states. Secondly, as I say, this drift towards civilian measures, which without necessarily undermining or dequalifying the military missions, made it very clear that the EU was not really a military actor in any, in any serious sense. Whenever there was a major problem on the EU's borders, whether we're talking about the Balkans, whether we're talking about Georgia, whether we're talking about the Arab Spring, or more recently, Ukraine, the EU immediately hands over responsibility back to NATO, which essentially means back to Uncle Sam. Um, thank you for the clarification. How has this had an effect on new initiatives, perhaps? Through this um, 
this uh, 2016 global strategy document and the emphasis on strategic autonomy, we get a major impulse towards new initiatives over the last few years. The European Defence Fund, which is a, you know, it's a eight, ten, $15 billion seed corn grant from the European Union to defence industries in the different countries to try to cooperate and do things together. I mean, this is, you know, everything is as long as a piece of string. So you can measure this as a great initiative for the EU, but in American terms, this is peanuts. Um, the uh, PESCO project, the, the Permanent Structured Cooperation Project, which is an attempt to get different member states those who want to be involved in different projects to cooperate with each other, to generate capacity, to take on tasks, to do all sorts of things like that. Um, it, it's you know uh, it was initially intended to give a stimulus to those member states who took defence really seriously, who were putting money behind it, who were putting troops and forces behind it to cooperate. But under German pressure. It includes every single member state, with the exception of the UK and Denmark at the time, because Denmark always had knocked out. Um, and, and that kind of, you know, just dilutes the whole value of the thing and brings it down to a sort of lowest common denominator or the, 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 the convoy will sail at the speed of the slowest ship, you know. Um, so PESCO has not really changed much in my judgment, in my view because it is not taking on board the uh, areas of capacity where the EU is most deficient. That is strategic enablers, that is heavy transport, that is logistics, that is intelligence, all of those things, which cost a lot of money and take a lot of time to coordinate. Could you elaborate on the EU's relationship with NATO and the USA? The big problem, and to my mind, and most of what I've written about over the last probably 10 years now, is the EU's relationship with NATO. Is the EU trying to edge NATO out? Is it uh, a rival to NATO? Is it operating in um, coordination with NATO? What is going on between the EU and NATO? And there have been so many different analyses of this, particularly in the context of strategic autonomy. Most people who have written about strategic autonomy assume that the common security and defense policy will achieve strategic autonomy on its own in contradistinction to NATO, possibly in opposition to NATO, but definitely it'll have to do it on its own through these measures we've been talking about. I took the view some time ago, probably 10 or even more years ago, that that was never going to work because NATO's not going away. It remains the default uh, collective defense mechanism for Europe and the relationship with the United States, whatever one might think of it, through the Iraq war, through the Trump years or whatever, uh, remains important, if not, you know, vitally important for for, for Europe. So I, I and a number of other people began to plead in favor of autonomy through NATO the Europeanization of NATO, the European pillar in NATO, whatever you want to call it, but that it would have to be done in cooperation with, and as the French say, en bonne intelligence, meaning, you know, hand in hand with the Americans. 
America has been saying to Europe ever since the Second World War, but certainly since the end of the Cold War, you've got to step up to the plate and take greater responsibility for your neighborhood, which is a problematic neighborhood from the Baltic to the Black Sea and from the Bosphorus to the Atlantic. There's nothing but crises all along the European neighborhood. It's almost like a sort of mutual schizophrenia we've got into. The Americans are saying, do this, step up, take responsibility, but we remain the leaders. <laughs> the Europeans are saying, yeah, we would love to become more autonomous, but we don't want to push the Americans away so that they'll you know, retreat into isolationism. And this goes round and round in circles. You know, the, the, the EU has done all these missions. It's not nothing. Um, it's useful experience. Uh, we hope that there are lessons learned from all of these operations and missions, but we have to we have to recognize that most of them are very, very minor and relatively insignificant in the great scheme of things. You know, the only really important strategic missions, I would say, are the anti piracy missions off the Horn of Africa and also in the Gulf of Guinea, um, to some extent, the, um, the missions in the Balkans, which have been stabilizing Kosovo and um, Bosnia-Herzegovina and whatnot ever since the, the wars there. Thank you for that response. Could you talk a little bit about NATO in the face of the Ukraine crisis? I think we have to start with the recognition that in the build-up to the crisis, they say in the late fall of last year, 2021, um, as it became clear that something serious was happening, the EU as such was absolutely missing in action. The negotiations with the Russians were exclusively done by the Americans. All of those high-level talks were bilateral, America, Russia, America, Russia, Washington, Moscow, and the EU as such, particularly the high representative, Joseph Borrell, was reduced pretty much to silence. Now, once the war started, and the EU had been assisting Ukraine with, you know, millions of euros of aid over the period since the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Uh, but th this was, again, very small, particularly in comparison with what the Americans were giving. Um, once, the, once the war started, once Putin invaded, we then get a kind of awakening and lots of statements that the EU has done more to... Um, adopt a common position in one week than it did in the previous 10 years. You know, statements like this, which are a bit silly, really, because that, you know, I mean, uh, aspirational, yes, but it's not not a reality at all. What has the EU done? Uh, well, it's done a lot, but mainly on the civilian side. Its main contribution has been um, dealing with refugees, 5 million of them, providing hospital beds, uh, for uh, the troops, uh, body armor, um, relatively low-level sorts of things, uh, medical assistance, some lethal weaponry, but not in any significant amount. I mean, compared, compared with what the United States has given Ukraine, which, depending on the source you look at, 
um, is anything from 25 billion to up to 35 billion dollars in military assistance. The EU has given probably about two billion dollars in military assistance. We can go into the types of assistance that they've given, types of military weaponry that they've given, if you're interested in that. Uh, but the, but the scale that gives you some idea of the scale, sort of between 25 billion and two billion, and this is on the EU's doorstep. Of course, this is where the EU um, uh, risks uh, escalation and, and 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 all sorts of problems. So the EU's contribution has been relatively massive, but more on the softer side of power than the hard side of power. And how effective would you say the EU has been in light of this crisis? Well, I think um, support for critical infrastructure, a certain amount of intelligence, but the Americans are giving the hard military intelligence that the Ukrainians need to uh, fight the Russians. Um, I, obviously, the Ukrainians are very grateful for what has been done and grateful for the political support they've got, statements of, um, you know, solidarity, statements about uh, uh, Russian aggression. You know, I mean, the, all of that is is important. And when we got the visit to Kiev in June of the three main leaders, Emmanuel Macron, Olaf Scholz, and Mario Draghi of Italy, uh, where they went to Kiev and said, we will open the doors to discussions about eventual one day, you know, some way down the future membership of the European Union. That was a huge, hugely important political gesture. I wouldn't put it more strongly than a political gesture because the problems of Ukraine actually becoming a member of the European Union are, are massive. And there are many other candidates, you know, in the in the queue before Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine in some ways has, has skipped the queue, but um, there's still a long way to go. So I think that um, it's difficult really to put a sort of balance sheet on it. I think the EU has done what it can. Most of the weapons deliveries have been by individual member states. So, you know, France has given Caesar how it says um, the UK has given quite, uh, the UK has actually given more that one country to Ukraine than the EU 27. Can you tell us a bit about the impact of this on Central and Eastern Europe, both today and historically? Um, the most recent development is that uh, the French President Emmanuel Macron proposed back in June, that we create a new uh, agency or a new forum called the European Political Community, uh, which is to include all countries in the European space, including in Eastern Europe. I mean, countries like Armenia, Azerbaijan, um, Moldova, Ukraine, etc. Uh, but the criteria is you have to be a democracy. So this excludes Russia and it excludes Belarus. It kind of sets up um, a situation where you've got the whole of Europe um, opposed to these two countries, which are considered to be dictatorships to, to, to the East. It's not exactly sure quite how useful this is going to be. It's the reprisal, if you like, of an idea which the French president, François Mitterrand, came up with in 1990, actually, New Year's Eve speech 
31st of December 1989 for a European confederation. He was aware already, and this, I think, uh, moves into your other concern about the impact of all of this on Central and Eastern Europe. Mitterrand was aware from the moment the Berlin Wall went down that the biggest problem facing Europe is going to be enlargement. The enlargement of the European Union, the enlargement of NATO. Which countries are going to be allowed in, which are not going to be allowed in? And what are going to be the criteria? So there was an already a big discussion back then, the, 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 right at the very beginning of the post-Cold War period, as to whether the EU should deepen its structures and its uh, integration before embracing Central and Eastern European members, or whether that enlargement was so urgent that it should take place immediately. And what François Mitterrand came up with, with this idea of the Confederation was that there would be this other forum embracing the whole of Eurasia, including Russia, and incidentally, excluding the United States, this would be a purely European thing. It didn't work because the Central and Eastern Europeans, once they realized that this was a, an alternative to membership of the European Union or a waiting room which might last for decades, they scuttled the scheme. So it died the death within two years. Macron has reinvented it with a certain degree of success because the first meeting of this forum took place last week, was it, or the week before? What are we now? Yeah, no, last week in Prague, the 6th of um, October, is that last week? But anyway, doesn't matter, recently. <laughs> and um, the Brits showed up, the Turks showed up, there was a discussion between Armenia and um, Azerbaijan, which are at war with each other. It was considered to be a useful forum in which transcontinental problems could be discussed in the relevant grouping of heads of state and government and whatnot. Um, it's not clear where it's going. Uh, most, many of the Eastern European states remain concerned that it will prove to be another waiting room or an alternative to actual membership. The, the EU leaders swear that it's not that, that, you know, it's not an, it's not an alternative to membership, but that membership is going to take a long time. <laughs> so that's about where we are now, uh, everybody waiting for this war to end before you can actually um, take anything further forward. I don't know whether that answers some of your questions. Um, please ask other questions. I mean, on enlargement, let me just say one important thing. Um, in 2002, Tony Blair, UK Prime Minister at the time, was trying to make the case for enlargement of the European Union to Poland. And he was concerned there was instability on the Polish-German border because Poles were flocking across the border to find work and, and, and refugees and so on and so forth. And he said, we have to have enlargement in order to avoid instability on the border. When you think about that for two, two seconds, it's the craziest thing anybody ever said, because you enlarge to Poland in order to avoid instability on the Polish-German border, and you've got massive instability on the Polish-Belarusian border. 
so eventually, I guess you could take in Belarus, and then you've got as you know, you've got even more instability on the Russian border. So if Russia becomes a member of the European Union, where's the instability on the Chinese border? So, you know, the idea that you have to have enlargement in order to avoid instability on the borders doesn't really make sense. And, and we're stuck with that issue of how to cope with enlargement. So despite the fact that there is the common security and defense policy, do you believe that a common defense mechanism pertaining to a common European army would be more effective in the realm of defense? Well, there are very few people who really talk about a common European army. I mean, people from time to time slip the the, the concept out. Um, it would depend enormously on what you mean by that, that this would be made up of European Union member state troops, which would be permanently detached from their nation state and assigned on a fairly permanent basis to a European force led by a European chain of command, separate from NATO, separate from the US. Um, nobody's really talking about that. I, I, don't, I don't talk about that. I mean, I'm in favor of the EU becoming a security actor because I think it's essential. And we're seeing the reasons why it's essential right now. Um, but the most people are talking about is, um, I mean, in the most recent uh, document, which is called the Strategic Compass, which was published in March of this year, went through, went through eight drafts, three of which, three drift, different drafts came about after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So you see how difficult it is for the EU even to come up with a word processing exercise which says what it's supposed to be doing. But in that draft, it talks about having a rapid deployment force of 5,000 troops. Well, I mean, a rapid deployment force of 5,000 troops is, 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 is pretty, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's minor. It's, it's, it's very small. Yeah. Now, more interesting development is that within the context of NATO, at the NATO summit in Madrid uh, in June, they, they came up with the idea that they were going to have a new um, defensive force made up of 300,000 troops assigned to NATO, but the vast majority, if not all of them, will be European troops, right? It's not entirely clear where they're going to get these 300,000 troops from, but they will be assigned to specific missions on the borders of Eastern Europe um, in, in high readiness to repel any Russian invasion of any EU member state or any NATO member state. That's more like the nucleus of a European army, but it is situated very explicitly within NATO but under a very explicit European command chain and a European commander-in-chief. It's up to the Americans are setting the strategic direction of this, but the Europeans are going to have to figure out how they find these troops, how they, you know, where they are going to locate them, how they're going to figure out the chain of command, what they're going to equip them with and whatnot. And there you run into problems of strategic culture that, um, different EU armies have different cultural approaches to, you know, 
almost anything, the most ridiculous things. They, they, you know, we set up um, a European Eurocore back in the 1980s. France and Germany decided to set up a joint Franco-German thing called the Eurocore, even though France and Germany's um, defense culture was completely different and remains completely different, actually. But they found that, you know, German officers were not allowed alcohol with their meals. French officers wouldn't have a meal without wine and whatnot. And so they couldn't sit down together and have dinner together. You know? So these sorts of ridiculous things, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but to give you the, 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 the flavor of it. So that I think is the more likely um, uh, forum in which the Europeans will um, will generate some sort of meaningful capacity. And it's being driven by the Ukraine war and being driven by the Americans. Now, whether it'll work, we'll have to see. I mean, this is very new. Um, nothing like this has happened before. What is the fundamental issue that's stopping this from being possible? In other words, why is the EU in a weak position? The, big, the biggest problem of all for the Europeans is the political command. We don't, Europe doesn't have a president, you know, an executive central authority, central political authority. It is the member states. And right now, uh, despite a sort of surface or a veneer of unity over the Ukraine crisis, they're as divided as ever, and particularly big divisions between grosso modo Central and Eastern European countries, the Baltics, Poland, some of the um, more Eastern countries, and the original founder members. In their attitude to Russia, in their attitude to Ukraine, in their attitude to the delivery of arms to Ukraine, in, in, in all sorts of ways, they're very divided. We also have increasingly um, significant divisions between France and Germany, which has been the motor of Europe from the beginning, uh, divisions over energy policy, uh, divisions over appropriate um, military directions, uh, or significant divisions to the, to the extent that the Franco-German uh, annual summit that was due to meet, I think, next week or in a couple of weeks' time has been cancelled because Olaf Scholz and uh, Emmanuel Macron cannot agree on the agenda. So these are serious problems. France is very weak now because of the parliamentary elections. Macron's power has been sort of whittled down. Germany is in a coalition of considerable complexity. Italy, as you know, has just appointed the first post-fascist prime minister today uh, in a very complicated coalition situation, which probably isn't going to last. And Britain is a basket case. Um, it runs through prime ministers and chancellors of the checkers, though they were sort of, you know, tap water. So, you know, Europe is not looking strong. It's looking very weak, very divided, and very concerned about all of these contextual challenges that it has to face. So in terms of third-party states, it seems that the new Permanent Structured Cooperation, or PESCO, initiative is meant to increase the Union's capacity to respond to acts of aggression by third-party states. So how does this initiative work? How has this initiative influenced the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, 
um, you know, the mantra, the um, very explicit belief ever since NATO was founded in 1949 is that Europe without the United States could never uh, fend off an attack from Russia. I mean, that was the case throughout the Cold War and has remained the case throughout the post-Cold War period. Not that Russia for most of that period was an overt threat to the European Union, but nevertheless, the mantra was that collective defense, meaning the defense of Europe as a, as a collectivity, uh, was exclusively the remit of NATO and the United States. And nobody really challenged that until about a couple of years ago when um, a leading political scientist in the United States, Barry Posen from Massachusetts Institute for Technology, uh, wrote a piece in Survival, the um, quarterly of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, called Europe Can Defend Itself. And he was reacting to a study which had been done by the IISS about a year previously, which said that in the event of an, a Russian invasion of Poland and Lithuania, so the scenario was Russian invasion of Poland, Lithuania, the Russians capture parts of Poland and half of Lithuania. The study was to assess whether the European Union could do a counteroffensive and get that territory back. And the answer was no way without spending about three or four times the existing European Union defense budget, which of course is unthinkable for the Europeans. Barry Posen's article said, well, that's a false scenario. You're assuming that the European Union could not deter Russia in the first place. And here's how it could deter Russia. And he comes up in this article, Europe can defend itself with a fairly, fairly solid, robust assessment of the military capacity available to the Europeans, uh, which in his view could deter Russia without American support. Now, you've got the nuclear problem, which we have to set to one side because that's a complete whole different ball game. But in terms of conventional capacity, Posen's argument was the Europeans could defend themselves against Russia. Now, given the abysmal performance of the Russian army in Ukraine, uh, you might be tempted to think that Posen's got a point here and that all this sort of fear of this massive monolithic Russian machine that was going to pour across Europe and be at the Atlantic in two weeks uh, was over overblown, overstated. I'm not going to get into the that particular issue because I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not that level of a military specialist. But that I think is the thing. Now there was no mention of Pesco in all of that. So Pesco is a a series of projects which different combinations of European member states have agreed to do together. But again, I mean, and these again are things like, you know, organizing a field hospital, the sorts of things that the European Union likes to do. Um, uh, there's a certain amount of, 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 of work on um, procurement, but the, the really important stuff, the strategic enablers, are not, they're not there in PESCO and, and nobody has yet had the courage or the, 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 the uh, 
and the dynamism to say, look, we need strategic lift. We need uh, serious intelligence capacity. We need all of these things. Um, quantum computing. I mean, there, there are all sorts of things that, you know, chips is <laughs> becoming, you know, technology, high-tech high style. So that's missing in PESCO, which is why most people feel that PESCO is really not going to set the earth on fire. You will get people who will write that PESCO is, you know, Europe's greatest chance to develop capacity. But I would, I would be a little bit skeptical that it can go much beyond the sorts of things we've been talking about for 20, 30 years. I don't want to be too pessimistic because the Commission has now, the European Commission since, since the summer has come up with a whole series of projects for, um, for encouraging member states to do defence procurement together jointly. I can give you the names of the names of some of these things. I mean, they've got they've got very um, very special names. What I do, um, so we've got, for instance, the defence in investment gap analysis, the European Defence Industry Reinforcement through Common Procurement Act, which is trying to encourage them to do things together, the uh, EU Defence Investment Programme, and the creation of a Defence Joint Procurement Task Force. Now, all of these initiatives are geared to achieving the same thing, which is to make the member states procure defence equipment together instead of doing it uh, individually. Whether it'll work, we don't know, but it, there's certainly a, a lot of, a lot of um, power behind that, uh, that, that, that series of initiatives. I don't know whether that answers your question about PESCO. Okay. Yeah, that was a great answer. Um, we had more questions, but you've done a beautiful job answering them, especially um, with your synopsis at the beginning of the interview. Um, so we just really wanted to thank you for taking the time to work with us and help us gain a better understanding of EU common defense policy and what, what it's shaping to become. Okay. Let me leave you with one thought, which is important for you as young Americans who are into this IR game. I believe that this conundrum of how the EU and the United States solve the question of allowing the Europe or encouraging the Europeans to, to step up their game and take more responsibility for the neighborhood, that is as much in Europe's interest as it is in America's interest. We have to resolve this apparent schizophrenia or the contradiction that I raised earlier, that somehow America fears that this is going to be competition or it's going to be you know, a, a zero-sum game. No, this is a positive-sum game for both sides if we can get it right. I, I believe that very profoundly. But today, we just keep going around in circles with it. <laughs> Over to you guys then. We want to acknowledge our appreciation for Dr. Howarth for allowing us to interview him and discuss these interesting and complex topics. He gave us very insightful responses. We are truly very lucky to have two incredibly esteemed experts on the security and defense series. Although we have a basis for these concepts, engaging with both Dr. Howarth and Dr. Fix, who we interviewed in part one, allowed us to delve even deeper into these themes to better understand their origins and their current impact on regional and global security.
And of course, we want to thank you, the listener, for undertaking the most crucial part of this podcast, for taking the time to listen and learn from our discussions. We hope you gained a plethora of material from this podcast that motivate you to dive even further into this theme. From all of us here in the Europe and the World podcast, we hope you have a great day and we leave you with this quote from Henry Kissinger. No foreign policy, no matter how ingenious, has any chance of success if it is born in the minds of a few and carried in the hearts of none.